this is Francis Schaeffer. Okay, and he was an American evangelical Christian. He was a philosopher. He was a pastor. He was an author. He's most famous for um, his books that he wrote, and also for establishing uh, a community in Switzerland where travellers could come and ask honest questions about God and get honest answers from him. Now, one of his most popular works was published in 1976, and it was a book called "How Then Shall We Live?" And in the book. The purpose was to show how ideas, how, how we embrace ideas or reject ideas, have shaped the rise and the fall of Western society, Western culture. And in the opening chapter, Schaefer writes this, he says, what people are in their thought life determines how they act. The results of their thought life flow through their fingers and flow from their tongues into the external world. And he says, this is true of Michelangelo's chisel. So he, what he thought about, he chiseled with his hands. And it's also true of a dictator's sword. If he wants power, he will come out in violence. In other words, what Schaefer said was that what you believe determines how you live. And he asked the question, how then shall we live? And he goes on to answer in the book about the way that we live is that it must be consistent with what we believe, what we profess. And if they're out of step, then we're not living truly because what we believe will affect how we live. And that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews uh, puts forward as well in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who, were suffer who had suffered in the past and were on the, on the brink of suffering again. They were facing the threat of suffering and hardship. Now, years ago when they had suffered before, they'd done really well. They had suffered well and they had stood firm, but now as they face this new threat of persecution, the writer, the author of Hebrews, is worried that the, the suffering and the hardship has left them discouraged and weakened, and that because they faced suffering in the past and they've done okay, but they've been worn down, perhaps when they face the next bout of suffering, they might settle for a kind of a sub-Christian experience, that they might seek to... Um, compromise their faith to avoid further hardship or some might even turn away from Christ completely and so throughout the book he's he's concerned that Chris, the Christians that he's writing to don't settle for a superficial or a shallow faith with God a relationship with God that fits their lifestyle or their convenience he's worried that they don't doubt, experience doubt in their salvation or in Jesus Christ because they lack assurance. He's worried that they don't predominantly focus on their sin so that they remain distant and aloof from God. And he's worried that they might cut themselves off from one another as well as they just seek to live life for themselves. And so the book of Hebrews asks the same question that Schaefer asks, which is, how then shall we live? And what the author has to say, his answer that he gives us is timely for us as we start meeting together again and as we think about what we are as a church. So uh, if you are in this current season and you feel a bit discouraged and a bit weak because of the effects of uh, the pandemic and the lockdown, and it can be easy for us to say, oh, do you know what? It's easy to roll out of bed on a Sunday morning and just watch the service at a time that suits me and sitting in, a, in Pomfrey Pavilion with a mask on and watching songs on a video and not singing along. That's awkward. And so maybe I'll just stay at home. I'll cut myself off. I'll enjoy life as it suits me. And it can be very tempting for us to settle 
for a subpar Christian experience, that the hardships of recent times can confuse us in how we're supposed to ask, answer the question, how then shall we live? Well, the writer to the Hebrews is writing with urgency. He's writing to say from chapters 1 to 10 that Jesus is better. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than the law. He's better than uh, the temple. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than everything else that has ever existed or will exist. And so therefore, because Jesus is better, here's how we live. And let's read from verses 19 to 23, where the writer says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened up through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10 verse 19 marks a transition in the writer's uh, letter to the Hebrews. He's summing up everything that he said before, as I said in chapters 1 to 10, about how Jesus is better. And now in chapters 11 to 13, he's going to tell us how we should live in light of that. But this is kind of a summary and then three exhortations that he gives us about how we should live. And we know that it's a summary statement because he begins in verse 19 with the word therefore, which means on the basis of everything that I've already said, here's some important stuff. So what has he already said? Well, he summarizes it in two statements. He says, for, first of all, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... Now, remember, this was written to a predominantly Jewish audience who would have known about the temple. They would have known about the sacrificial system. They would have known about the most holy place, that special place inside the temple where only the high priest could go and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the writer now is saying, you can enter into the most holy place. You who were not allowed, who never used to be able to get near, you can come close now. And this would have been revolutionary to the Jews because if you went into the holy place unauthorized, you would have been struck down dead. But now the writer to the Hebrews is saying, we, Jews and Gentiles as well, can approach the most holy place, that place where God himself dwells in all of his blazing beauty. We can approach that freely. We can approach that with confidence, not just boldly, as we might understand the word confidence, but we can approach with authorization, with permission. We can enter into that which was restricted. We've been given an access all areas pass. And what makes the impossible possible is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. That Jesus was obedient to go to the cross and laid down his life to obtain the right of entry into God's holy presence for you and for me. That he came to make a way for us that's new. The writer to the Hebrews says it's a new way. It's a way that wasn't open to us beforehand. It wasn't an option that was available, but it's new now. It's a new way into God's presence. And it's a living way. Because through it, we receive life. We receive the very eternal life of God and can enter into the presence of 
the living God. It's a qualitatively different way of approaching God. And it's not by the repeated sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats. It's through the once for all sacrifice of Christ who's had his blood spilt and his flesh torn, just like the curtain was torn in two at the moment of his death. So he says, since we have this confidence, and then the second summary statement, since we have a great priest over the house of God, that he's saying that you and I, we have someone who represents us before God, someone who's, making us, who's made a sacrifice for us before God, someone who has uh, atoned for us before God, and someone who ever lives to intercede on our behalf, stands in the very presence of God as our mediator and as our advocate. And because we have these two things, because we have entry through his blood, and because we have him as our mediator and our great high priest, because these two things are true, now how then shall we live? Well, three ways, two of which we'll cover today and one of which we'll cover next week. And they are the three lettuces of the New Testament, aren't they? Nobody can laugh. I can't see you laugh at my jokes with your masks on, but there we go. The three lettuces, we're going to cover two this week and eat one next week. So let's do the first one. Let us draw near, verse 22. The writer has a passion for us to draw near to God. He wants us in the presence of God. He's told us that in, in chapter 4. He's told us that in chapter 7. He'll tell us that again in chapter 11. He wants us near. As Christians, we aren't held at bay. We're not kept at arm's length from the awesomeness of God's holy presence. Think about how our experience compares with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees the majesty and the awesomeness of God uh, through a vision where he sees the, the train of God's robe filling the temple as a sign of his majesty. He sees angels that cover their faces and cover their feet, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He sees the, the doorpost and the very threshold of the building of the temple shaking in the presence of God. And Isaiah falls down on his face and cries, woe is me. But we here are told by the writer of the Hebrews that we do not enter in with the same fearful trepidation or the same uncertainty as Isaiah faced. We don't have to ask the question, should we be here or not? We can draw near with boldness. We have authorization. We have permission. We can come into the place of God's blazing glory, which is the last place that sinners should be allowed to be. And we can do that because of Jesus. Then he, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, we do that with a true heart, which means we do that sincerely. We do that with a single-minded devotion. We are called to abandon all of the distractions and the things that tempt us and compete for the glory uh, of our hearts. We're to come with a full assurance of faith. When we come into God's presence, we're to come with absolute confidence in the fullness and the sufficiency of Jesus that we abandon all of our self-effort and our self-righteousness and the merits of what we put our hope in. And we come on the basis of Jesus. So we sing that hymn that we, um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the second line says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. And we can sing that like, I dare not trust. The... But it's actually, we should sing it like, I dare not trust anything else but Jesus' name and wholly lean on him. And we come with the confidence of knowing that our hearts have been sprinkled clean 
from evil consciences. Our guilt is gone and our bodies have been washed with pure water. It's a, a picture here of the reality that Ezekiel speaks about in Ezekiel 36, where God promises that he will sprinkle his people clean and he will give us new hearts. There'll be an internal work of the spirit that's uh, symbolized by an external washing of our bodies through baptism. And so we, this morning, and every time we gather together as a church, we get the privilege to approach God, not reluctantly, not tentatively, not fearfully. We also don't do it uh, uh, flippantly or with a kind of a giddy frolic. We do it with confidence and with joy, recognizing the astonishing cost that God has gone to to rescue us and to draw us near, that he's washed us, that all of the barriers that formerly hindered our access to God have been fully and decisively and eternally removed. And we draw near, not because God needs us, not because he's impoverished without us. In fact, David says in Psalm 16, verse 11, that there is fullness of joy at your right hand and pleasures forevermore. We come and we draw near because it's good for us. It's for our joy. It's for our good. It's for our blessing. And so the writer of Hebrews encourages us to draw near, that we shouldn't settle for a Christian life at a distance from God or a distance from one another, but we should draw near to him on the basis of all that God has done in Christ. And that we can experience real, deepening, ever-increasing relationship and fellowship and communion with the one who alone can satisfy at the deepest level. So I might sum it up like this, we draw near because God's holy presence is no longer there to consume us as sinners, it's there to thrill us as his children. So let us draw near. Then secondly, let us hold fast. As we said, it was written, this book was written to a group of Christians who were potentially drifting away from Jesus because of the challenges that they faced and the hardships that they were experiencing. And so he says, Jesus is better, so don't drift away, don't walk away, don't abandon your profession, don't waver, don't give in, don't give up. Jesus is better than you know, better than you can experience, better than anything else, better than everything else, past, present and future. So then let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That means that we are to be, at the, at the broadest, most general level, people of the book. That we're to put our hope in, the conf in what God says to us, the confession of our faith, the truth of this book. But at a more specific level, we're to hold fast what this book points us to, which is Jesus in all of his glory. And we're to hold firm and hold fast to the confession of hope in the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving world. We're to hold unswervingly to the hope that we have in Jesus that... Jesus is our Lord, that Jesus has saved us, that Jesus has saved even me, and that one day he's coming back to take me to be with him forever. We're to keep hold of that. We're to live by faith in that, not by the sight, not by the things that we see, not by uh, uh, faith in what is tangible and visible now, but we're to live by faith in the things that can't be seen right now. And we're to put all our eggs in that one gospel basket. That's what he says to us. Put all your eggs in the basket of Jesus. Then in chapter 11, he goes on to give us a star-studded list of great heroes of the faith who did the very thing that he exhorts us to do. 
Men like Moses, Abraham, Sarah, Rahab, who held on to the confession of their hope. They held on and they clung in faith, looking forward to what God had promised. Now they died looking forward. They died without having received the promises, but they kept on believing. They kept on trusting. They kept on hoping. They held on to the confession of their faith. And they did so because, as as he tells us in verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. That we have a God who is not just a promise giver, but he's a promise keeper. We have a God who always does what he says. We have a God who will not disappoint us, who will not forsake us. We have a God who has proven himself faithful again and again and again. So we hold fast the confession of our hope. Two lettuces. Now, aren't you a little bit curious? I am, because if he's already given us 10 chapters about how Jesus is better, why does he give us this summary statement and issue these two calls to draw near and to hold fast if he's already done the hard work in 10 chapters? Well, I think it's because we so easily forget. It's because the writer of Hebrews knows that you and I, are, we very often live as if our access is denied. We stay away from God. We remain distant and aloof because we are troubled by our past. We're racked with guilt over our past sins. And we think we cannot approach God. How could he let me in? But we also, we let our hold on the confession of our hope slip. We've got butterfingers. Now, it's not that we outrightly reject the gospel, but we replace it. Or we resist it and we get distracted from it. We put our hope in ourselves. We put our hope in others. We put our hope in other things that we want more than we want God. And we forget the gospel. And we forget that what we have and what we enjoy is only made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he addresses us because he knows our tendency and our temptation to doubt the power of the gospel to change us. And we underestimate the potential of the gospel to cheer our discouraged hearts, to refresh our weary souls, to captivate our wandering minds, to motivate us as apathetic Christians and to sustain us as suffering saints. And so we gather week after week after week together to remind ourselves and to remind one another of gospel truth. We gather to lift up and to exalt and to explore and to celebrate and to center on and to revel in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's no greater revelation or reality than the gospel of Jesus. There's nothing that shows us the glory of God more clearly than the gospel of Jesus. There's nothing that can give you assurance and comfort and hope in the midst of struggle and suffering than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will generate more hope, more joy, that will sustain us and keep us and hold us in all of the temptations and the hardships that we will face than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. Outside of heaven, the power and the glory of God is at its thickest and most densest and most powerful and most potent in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why when we gather together, We're trying to do everything to focus our attention and our minds on the gospel. The call to worship is not just 
uh, a moment where we say, well, we're running a bit behind, so let's help everybody find a seat before we really get started with the singing. No, when we, when we hear the scriptures read, God is summoning us to join together as his people. It's a worship preparing moment where we receive the weekly audacious invitation to gather in God's presence, to draw near through the gospel. The songs that we sing are, are sometimes to help us confess our sin and our need of a saviour, sometimes to help us hear God's word of pardon and forgiveness, sometimes to reassure us of the hope that we have and our faith in Christ, always to express our gratitude and praise to him for his work in the gospel. When we pray, it's not just an empty liturgical element, but a reminder that we can, because of the gospel, we can draw near and we can do what Hebrews 4 says. We can come boldly to a throne of grace and find mercy and help in time of need from a high priest who is able to sympathize with us and who freely dispenses his grace to us. And we pray because, as, as uh, Tim Keller says, Prayer turns our gospel theology into gospel grace and experience. Then the sermon is not just the sequel to the songs, but the high point of the service. And that's not because I have a highly inflated view of myself and what I think and what I want to say. But because in praying and singing, we speak to God. But in the sermon, his word speaks to us. And he holds before us gospel realities, not just cold, hard facts about what and how and when and where but heartwarming hope that is supposed to steady us and strengthen us and sustain us for the week when we scatter we do communion and we'll do that here in the coming Sundays because we can see and touch and taste the gospel with our eyes the gospel with our hands as the Puritans called it where the elements that we hold and we taste and we experience representing Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And then we close with a benediction, not because it's again a, a kind of a pointless liturgical element, but because we want God's word to have the last word as we scatter to preach the gospel and demonstrate the gospel and declare the gospel to a watching world. So that's why we gather together. We gather to draw near and to hold fast. We gather around the gospel, we gather because of the gospel, we gather through the gospel, we gather to be strengthened by the gospel, we gather to be transformed by the gospel, we gather to be equipped by the gospel to serve one another and to evangelize in the, in the, to a lost world in the power of the gospel and we do all this for the glory of the God of the gospel. So then, since we have a high priest who's made a way for us to draw near and since we have hope through his blood, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray.